What's the difference between pride and arrogance? As Arash Amazadi writes from a psychological perspective, pride and arrogance, though similar, are different in important ways. I'm watching the World Cup, more specifically, the match between England and Tunisia. It is tied one and one, Irish writes. You can really feel the sense of national pride in the fans on both sides. They are dancing, singing, and cheering on their respective teams. But are these fans proud or are they arrogant? Is it good to be proud of your team? Of course. But is it good to be arrogant? Pride refers to those feelings that are generated by appraisals that one is responsible for a socially valued outcome or for being a socially valued person. According to this definition then, pride requires being responsible for an outcome that is valued socially. If you score a nice goal for your team, for instance, you might feel proud of your accomplishment. What is arrogance? Arrogance, Erich writes, refers to excessive and overbearing pride. If you are arrogant, then you may believe that scoring that nice goal in the dying minutes of a match means you have been carrying the team, that your teammates are useless without you, that if it were not for you, your team would have no chance whatsoever at succeeding. If you are arrogant, you are also more likely to compare everyone's accomplishments against your own incomparable accomplishments, constantly reaffirming your own superiority. Your hubris, arrogance, has no bounds. So what is the difference between pride and arrogance? Pride arises out of taking responsibility for a specific action that is considered positive and socially valued. But arrogance arises from pride, not in one's actions, but in one's global self. That is, pride results from attributions to internal, unstable, controllable causes. I won because I practiced and is associated with high self-esteem. So we gain a sense of pride from doing things that are in our power to do but require effort and determination. The result is increased self-esteem. Egotistical pride or arrogance, however, results from attribution to internal, stable, uncontrollable causes. I won because I'm always great, and it is associated with narcissism. The assumption that great actions do not result from the effort, but are natural consequences of our greatness. In other words, everything we touch turns to gold. As we conclude our mini-series in the book of Obadiah, we remember that we're looking at three issues of the heart. Sins that are often not obvious to other people because we can't see into others' hearts. But they form the root or basis of many of our outward sin and our godless ways. Specifically, this book deals with God's judgment against the Edomites, who are the descendants of Esau, because of three issues in their hearts. The first one we talked about was pride. The second one was rivalry. And the third one, which we will talk now, is about arrogance. God used the prophet Obadiah to deliver his message of divine judgment on Edom. So please turn with me in your Bibles to Obadiah as we study verses 15 to 21. Obadiah 15 to 21. In these verses, we're going to see four warnings to those who are arrogant, boastful, and conceited, which doubly serves as four encouragements to the victims of the arrogant. Now as you're turning to Obadiah, know that Edom's third issue of the heart, which is arrogance, is more implied than it is explicit 
in these seven verses. We know of the heart issue of arrogance based on the Lord's condemnation of them. We've already noted in our study in this short book how the Edomites really disliked their relatives, the Israelites, and they rejoiced at their downfall, especially in the invasion of their capital, Jerusalem, and how they were glad that Israel was going through a time of great adversity. The Edomites also boasted and prided themselves in their own power and in their own lack of misfortune in comparison to the Israelites. However, God was going to put these arrogant Edomites in their place, and it should serve as a warning to all who are arrogant in their hearts. Because the world has its Edomites, the arrogant, the boastful. Even the Christians have his and her Edomites. But this book gives the victim of the arrogant hope. For we will see that God will eventually destroy all Edomite types, just as He already destroyed the historic Edomites in fulfillment of His prophecy through Obadiah. Someone once said that arrogance is the only disease known to man that makes everyone sick except the one who has it. I remember reading about this situation where some people just don't want to be bothered with a seatbelt even when the law requires them to buckle up. According to the Associated Press, a New Zealander named Ivan Segedin took it to an extreme. The police ticketed him 32 times over five years for failing to use his seatbelt. Even though it was costing him big money, Segedin refused to buckle up in his arrogance that he didn't need a seatbelt. Finally, instead of obeying the law, the man decided to rely on deception. He made a fake seatbelt that would hang over his shoulder and make it appear that he was wearing a seatbelt when he was not. Well, his trick worked for a while. Then he had a head-on collision. He was thrown forward onto the steering wheel and killed. Discussing the accident, the coroner described the fake seatbelt. Though his car was fitted with seatbelts, an extra belt with a long strap had been knotted above the seatbelt on the driver's side, providing a belt to simply sit over the driver's shoulder, never fully securing him. When you read or hear this story, I don't think many of you would show much compassion to the deceased. Many of us may even think, serves him right. Some may even cheer silently. He played with his own fate in his arrogance. Arrogance makes us mad. Don't you hate it when you hear arrogant people talk, especially if it's in a condescending manner towards you? Sometimes you just literally want to hit them or tell them what you really think about them. Oftentimes, you wish ill upon them. But sadly, often the arrogant are in positions of influence or of power so that you really can't do anything about it, which really makes life quite unfair. However, what God reveals about Himself and how He operates can give us encouragement when we have to deal with arrogant people. And it serves as a warning for us if we have cultivated an arrogant heart. Let's take a look at the first of these warnings to the arrogant in verse 15. Obadiah 15. For the day of the Lord upon all the nations is near. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your reprisal shall return upon your own head. Here in verse 15, we're told that the Lord warns the Edomites that what they had done to the Israelites will happen to them. In effect, God, through the prophet Obadiah, tells the Edomites two times in one verse 
What goes around comes around. Meaning as you have taken advantage and rejoiced over others' troubles, the same troubles will happen to you. This English saying, what goes around comes around, which finds biblical support here in these verses, should serve as a warning to all who consider taking advantage of others when they are down or rejoicing when others are going through times of troubles. In fact, the Bible tells us in Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 to 8, that what one sows, they will also reap. The actions of the descendants of Esau, by not helping their relatives, the Israelites, but instead rejoiced over Israel's troubles, would come around and be the source of their destruction. God told them, as you have done, it shall be done to you. Greg Roof wrote in 1982, as a foreign student in China, I bought a ticket for a bus trip through the countryside of Guangxi. My number ticket was for a window seat, as I wanted to be in a position to photograph the stunning countryside. However, when I boarded the bus, I found a young man sitting in my assigned seat. I showed him my ticket, explained that I would appreciate the opportunity to sit by the window for this unique experience, and asked him to please move. He ignored me completely, so I sat in the aisle seat. About an hour or so into the trip, an elderly woman sitting in the row immediately ahead of us became motion sick. She stood up, leaned out her window, and vomited. The wind blew that vomit back inside our window and all over the face and the shirt of the uncooperative young man sitting in what should have been my seat. This story would illustrate the biblical principle of what goes around comes around. So this is our first warning to the arrogant What goes around comes around. Warning to the arrogant, number one, what goes around comes around. What goes around comes around. This is how our Lord teaches the arrogant a lesson. He often allows the arrogant to experience that which they made fun of in others. But it is also a reminder to us that we should not harbor this same heart attitude. Because if you sow an arrogant spirit, not only will you not have many friends, But at the end of the day, it may come back to you. That is what the Bible says. Your reprisal shall return upon your own head. Many years ago, before becoming a pastor, I had traveled to Hong Kong with my mother for a wedding and was dragged to a dinner with some of my mother's classmates. And of course, parents are naturally proud of their children and want to share about their accomplishments. And Asian parents are great at naturally working into their conversation how great their children are. Thankfully, my parents don't brag about us children too much. But there was a certain mother with her son there during dinner who kept bragging about her child. I could tell that her son was getting embarrassed and very uncomfortable with his mother's behavior and arrogant bragging. But she couldn't be stopped. I generally tuned out and just ate the delicious food, which is my only motivation for accompanying my mother to this dinner. She was saying that her son went to Harvard to get his bachelor's degree, Princeton for his master's, and now worked for a prestigious consulting company called Deloitte Consulting as he traveled all over the world. When I heard that the company was Deloitte, my eyes lit up and my mother, who knew me well, kicked me under the table 
because she knew I was going to say something that wasn't very nice. I waited until the arrogant woman who seemingly found her identity and self-worth through her son's colleges, job, and accomplishment asked me where I went to school and where I worked as she worked her way around the table asking all of her classmates what their children did and what they were up to. Of course, I knew she was trying to compare me with her son, but hiding it under a fake, genuine concern about our lives and my life. I was ready to answer, but of course my mother kicked me under the table again as if to remind me to be nice in my reply. But I could not contain myself. And so when that auntie asked me what school I went to and where I work, with some embellishment and drama in my voice, I said, Auntie, you know, I went to a university that isn't very prestigious. Definitely not as prestigious as Harvard and Princeton. We didn't have much money as a family, and so uh, I had to go through government loans and had to work while studying so that I could go to college. And again, it cannot compare to the great Harvard and Princeton. But you know, I'm very blessed because in spite of my lack of prestigious education, you may be surprised to know that I also work for Deloitte Consulting and I also travel all around the world and my rank is as senior consultant. I believe that makes me your son's boss based on ranking. Thanks so much for asking me. After my response, you could see that her face turned red with embarrassment and didn't say anything else throughout the entire dinner. After my answer, my mother just kicked me again under the table. But when I looked at her face, she had a big smile on her face. A warning to the arrogant. Remember, as you have done, it shall be done to you. What goes around, comes around. Look with me at verses 16 and 17 of Obadiah. For as you drank on my holy mountain so shall all the nations drink continually. Yes, they shall drink and swallow, and they shall be as though they had never been. But on Mount Zion there shall be deliverance, and there shall be holiness. The house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. These next two verses give Israel great hope, as it tells us that God will deliver His people. He tells the Edomites, that even though at this time of Jerusalem's invasion, they drink the wine of victory over God's people, the Israelites, at the end of the day, the Lord will prevail. He will deliver His people and restore His people to their rightful place. And God's promise at the end of verse 17 holds true. Both the Edomites and the Jewish people were kicked out of their lands by foreign invaders. The culture of the Edomites died out and they were erased from history. But not so for the Jewish people. In 1948, close to 2,000 years after they were removed from the lands by General Titus of the Roman army in 70 AD, Israel was resurrected as a nation as prophesied in the book of Ezekiel. Uniquely, it is the only time in history where a culture and language that had died out been fully restored. And the Bible tells us Israel will finally fully possess the land as promised to them all the way back to the time of their forefather Abraham in the future millennium. The Edomites and the enemies of Israel were essentially giving alcoholic victory toast to each other as described in verses 16 and 17. But in view of the greater unfolding of history and of God's sovereign and divine plan, this celebration was premature and will be short-lived 
because of his warning to the arrogant. Warning to the arrogant number two. God delivers his people and secures the final victory. God delivers his people and secures the final victory. Sometimes we feel very discouraged when those arrogant of heart, through their action and speech, walk around as if they are the victorious ones. But the Bible is very clear. The one who is ultimately victorious in this life are those who follow the Lord. 1 John chapter 5, verse 4 and 5 reads this, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. The Bible tells us it is those who follow the Lord that will have ultimate victory. Many people are so arrogant about their accomplishments in life, forgetting that the life we live is only the beginning of a life that extends to the life after this into eternity. No one should be celebrating at the beginning. The only true celebration comes at the end. This is true of sports. You should only celebrate after the final victory is secured. The greatest comeback in the NBA happened on November 27 of 1996 when the Utah Jazz, down by 36 points to the Denver Nuggets, late in the second quarter, overcame this defeat to win 107 to 103. It was 70 to 36 at the half and 70 to 34 just before. Everyone thought the Jazz would lose. Or perhaps in recent history, you remember the 2019 playoff game between the LA Clippers, where they trailed 31 points to the Golden State Warriors before they overcame them, and the final score was 135 to 131. You see, the only score that matters is the one that shows when the final buzzer sounds. It is true both of sports and true in life. It should be our preference to be the victors at the end and not at the beginning. The arrogant are those who are claiming victory and declaring themselves winners in life without the final bell, the final buzzer having sounded. So they just all end up looking like fools when the Bible tells us it is God who delivers the victory at the end. You know, it's like playing Monopoly and celebrating widely because you were the first to purchase property. Or in basketball, when you celebrate wildly just because you scored the first point of the game. Or in life, when you and your family celebrate with delirium because you got your first A in nursery. For those arrogant of heart, remember, God wins at the end. It is that victory that matters most when you pick sides in this life and choose whom to follow. For us as Christians, the wonderful encouragement we receive is that we know that God will deliver and vindicate His people. He will have the victory. And those who follow Him will be victorious. When NASA first started sending astronauts, they quickly discovered that ballpoint pens would not work in zero gravity. To combat the problem, NASA scientists spent a decade and up to $12 billion dollars to develop a pen that writes in zero gravity, upside down, underwater, on almost any surface, including glass, and at temperatures ranging from freezing to 300 degrees Celsius. The Russians just used a pencil. It doesn't matter if you have an amazing name, money, or prestige. 
God can easily grant wisdom and extend grace to the so-called underdog to level the playing field. Sometimes we do feel discouraged when the arrogant belittle us, puts us down, and we wonder if there will ever be deliverance. But the promise of God is that He will do the delivering and grant the victory, an encouragement to us and a warning to the arrogant of this world. Those who choose to mock and belittle the people of God, our assurance is that God will deliver us and make things all right. Look at verse 18. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, but the house of Esau shall be stubble. They shall kindle them and devour them, and no survivor shall remain of the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Here in verse 18, God through the prophet Obadiah speaks about the judgment of God as being complete and satisfying. The beginning of verse 18 talks about the capital of the Jewish people being invaded and literally in flames. But a remnant survives and the city historically is rebuilt. In comparison, the kingdom of Edom will be completely destroyed. They will not be able to rebuild. And as a people, they will be wiped off because of their sin and transgression against God. While this seems harsh, it reminds us that a God of love and mercy is also a God of justice. God's justice and judgment is complete and satisfying. This is warning to the arrogant number three. God's judgment is complete, impartial, and satisfying. God's judgment is complete, impartial, and satisfying. Again, this serves both as a warning to the arrogant and an encouragement to the one who is on the receiving end of someone's arrogant heart. Many of us are often discouraged when we feel that one who is arrogant does not get what he or she really deserves in our opinion. We may at times try to fix the problem, but to no avail. It just isn't simply satisfying. I remember in 2009 when the Dallas Mavericks were playing the Denver Nuggets in the playoffs. A last-second foul was not called by the referees, and the Mavs lost. The NBA even issued a statement and a ruling that the referee was wrong. But even with this admission of wrong, the final score was not overturned. How satisfying is it when you know that a wrong has been committed, and even an admission of wrong has been made, but yet the unfair outcome still stands? In response to the league's admission that the refs made the wrong call that affected the game and led to the Mavs' exit out of the playoffs, Mavs superstar Dirk Nowitzki said, I don't think it makes anybody feel better. We don't get the last seven seconds back to play it over again. More than anything, I think that admission made it worse. But then some may say, you only think it's unfair because you are from Dallas and you are biased. There are unfair calls on both sides. You don't lose a game based on one foul. And so it is, at times, hard to argue. Where is the impartiality that allows for a fair judge to judge on something like this? That is why in the Scriptures we're told over and over again that we should let God be the judge. We should let the omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent God who knows all, who sees all, who is all-powerful be the one who is the final adjudicator. God's justice and judgment is always complete. It is impartial because He sees all. And it is fully satisfying because He can do all. 
there's no use to fight with the arrogant of heart because in many ways we're also biased as they are biased. Let God deal with them and humble them. God's words are clear. In Romans chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, which speaks of God's righteous judgment, it says this, Paul writes, Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and do the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of His goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourselves wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. I like what Gary Hogan writes about manipulating justice. As any parent of small children will tell you, children have an amazingly acute sense of justice. Even the most fractional disparity in the distribution of the most trivial family good will be met with cries of, that's not fair. Of course, over time, parents will also note among children a powerful capacity to conveniently bend notions of justice to self-interest. A six-year-old's passion for justice is clearly not disinterested or unbiased. In the hands of clever human beings, justice becomes an amazingly flexible concept. In fact, as we get older, it comes to look more like a powerful tool for getting what one wants. As a result, we adults respond with a healthy dose of suspicion to zealots who bandy about slogans of justice. Indeed, every leader of mass murder in the 20th century, whether Hitler, Stalin, Pol Pot, or others, painted the cry for justice over their grotesque crimes. Again, our encouragement is to trust God's justice and judgment, for ours is biased, but God's is complete, impartial, and fully satisfying. Notice the last phrase of verse 18. For the Lord has spoken. Who can question God's judgment? He has spoken. God's judgment is fully satisfying. I'm reminded of a story where once there was a man who was such a golf addict that he was negligent of his job. He neglected his job at even church. Frequently, he would call in sick as an excuse to play golf. One morning after making his usual call to the office, an angel up above spotted him on his way to the golf course and decided to teach him a lesson. If you play golf today, you will be punished, the angel whispered into his ear. Thinking it was only his conscience, which he had successfully whipped in the past, the fellow just smiled. No, he said. I've been doing this for years. No one will ever know. 
I won't be punished. The angel said no more, and the fellow stepped up to the first tee where he promptly whacked the ball 300 yards straight down the middle of the fairway. Since he had never driven the ball more than 200 yards, he couldn't believe it. Yet, there it was, and his luck continued. Long drives on nearly every hole, perfect putting, two holes in one. By the ninth hole, he was six under par and was playing near-perfect golf. The fellow was walking on air. He wound up with an amazing score of 61, about 30 strokes under his usual game. Wait until he gets back to the office and tells his co-workers about this most amazing game he's ever played. But suddenly his face fell. He couldn't tell them. He could never tell them. In fact, he could never tell anyone about this most amazing round of golf he's ever played. The angel smiled. God's poetic justice is so satisfying. Look at me at verses 19 to 21. The south shall possess the mountains of Esau, and the lowland shall possess Philistia. They shall possess the fields of Ephraim and the fields of Samaria. Benjamin shall possess Gilead. And the captives of this host of the children of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. The captives of Jerusalem who are in Shepharad shall possess the cities of the south. Then saviors shall come to Mount Zion to judge the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Here verses 19 to 21 speaks of what happens when Jesus Christ returns to earth and sets up His rule of righteousness in the millennial kingdom after His second coming. He will put down all the proud and arrogant. And notice the last phrase of verse 21, the kingdom shall be the Lord's. This is a final warning to the arrogant of heart. The Lord will restore Himself to His rightful place as Lord of all. And on that day, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This should serve as a last warning to those arrogant of heart. Warning to the arrogant number four. The Lord reigns supreme. No one has a right to be arrogant. The Lord reigns supreme. No one has a right to be arrogant. If the Lord reigns supreme, no one has a right to be arrogant, whether Christian or non-Christian. You know, there are Christians who walk around with a chip on their shoulder, forgetting that they are saved by God's grace, and they have everything only because of God's grace. No one has a right to be arrogant, especially children of God, especially when the Lord reigns supreme and He's sovereign over all. Don't forget that the Creator of heaven and earth really owns everything that we have because He owns this entire universe. When my children were younger and they didn't want to share a toy or a device, I would take that toy or that device in my hand and say, for example, now who owns this Nintendo U-Box? I would get little Andrew to say, it belongs to Daddy. I would get little Nathan to say, it belongs to Daddy. And I would get Janelle to also say, it belongs to Daddy. So I say, if it belongs to Daddy, who gets to make all the rules? In unison, they are trained to say, Daddy. So I say, if Daddy owns everything, and he has the right to make up all the rules, and if his rule is you can only play if everyone has a fair turn and doesn't fight, then you have to accept these rules. Do you understand? And they all nod their head. Of course, they pause, but they have to admit 
that yes, it does belong to me. And I get to make all the rules. I simply let them borrow it because they are my children. Perhaps we need to remember this concept as adults as it relates to that which God owns and He has given these things to us as we are to steward them. God has lent them to us, all the things that we have. If we have this understanding, and we have this understanding that God can just as quickly take away what He has so graciously given us, then I don't think we will ever be arrogant of heart. But we've forgotten this truth. Abraham Kuyper makes this ringing proclamation, there is not one square inch of the entire creation about which Jesus Christ does not cry out, this is mine, this belongs to me. Such truth that if we remember and we meditate upon, I don't believe we will be arrogant of heart. There is not one thing that we own and there's not one thing on this earth over which Jesus does not cry, this is mine, this belongs to me. I end with this story. It's a story of an organist who was practicing one day in a great church in Europe. As he was playing, a man came up to the organ and asked if he could play. The organist looked at him and thought to himself, I shouldn't let this man play. Just look at him. He is unshaven. His clothes are soiled. He looks like a down-and-out man. So he told the man no. But the unkept stranger asked again and again. Finally, the organist let him play, thinking he couldn't play very long, for what does a down-and-out man know about organs? Down-and-out man's fingers dance over the keyboard in a way the organist hadn't heard in his lifetime. The stranger played on and on. The organist was spellbound. When the stranger was done and got up to leave, the organist could not contain himself and said, Who are you? What is your name? As the down-and-out man slowly walked away, he turned and said over his shoulder, My name is Felix Mendelssohn. The organist gasped. He said to himself, I almost did not let the master play. The organist had almost let his arrogance and prejudice get the better of him and would have then missed out on one of the most awesome moments of his life. So it is with arrogance. If left unchecked in our hearts, we may miss out on some awesome moments in life, but more importantly, we may miss out on letting the Lord do His work in our lives. We may miss out on letting the Master play in our lives. So as we close this short book, I hope all of us will examine our hearts to address the sinful heart attitudes that we may be cultivating, which while others may not see, manifests itself in destructive ways in our actions and in our speech. Are we proud? Are we rivalrous? Are we arrogant? And if the latter, let us be warned that what goes around comes around. Let it serve as a warning to us that God delivers His people and secures the final victory. Let it be a warning to the arrogant that God's judgment is complete, impartial, and satisfying. Let it be a warning that the Lord reigns supreme. No one has the right to be arrogant. So let's acknowledge the power and the sovereignty of God in all things and let us remain humble. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your Word. 
this book, Obadiah, has pierced my heart because it has shown me, and I hope it has shown those who have heard, that there are so many issues of the heart that we simply do not acknowledge and do not deal with. But yet, Lord, I pray that we would deal with the pride and the rivalrous and the arrogant attitudes in our heart so that we can serve you in a way that is honoring and pleasing to you. Father, what right do we have to be arrogant when you are sovereign over all and you own all that we have? Help us to keep this perspective so that we will not miss out on allowing the Master to have control over our lives. And we submit to you, Lord Jesus. We say, Lord, we have nothing to be prideful for. We have nothing to be arrogant of. We invite you to come and take control of our lives as we live our lives for you. Bless your people as we have heard your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.